thank you for joining us for this broadcast from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. We hope that you will subscribe and will share our broadcast with others. Now, we take you to the pulpit of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. Well, good morning. It is, it is good to just be together. I'm so grateful for your presence. Um, if you would, take out your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, we'll get there here in just a moment. Matthew chapter 28. Over the the last few weeks, we've been talking about the idea and the theme of my identity. And uh, part of that conversation, um, as I was thinking this week and kind of looking at where the next kind of section of uh, 1 Thessalonians takes us, uh, I wanted to to maybe pause for just a second and back up and and have a little bit different conversation with you uh, this morning, uh, starting in Matthew chapter twenty eight. Matthew chapter twenty eight, uh, for at least the book of Matthew, uh, ends the ministry of Jesus. Uh, it is a an amazing moment where Jesus is going to ascend back into heaven. Uh, where he is still there today awaiting, uh, the moment that God says it's time to come back and, and gather the saints. Uh, and that's really what next week is going to kind of focus on as we look at that particular part of First Thessalonians. But what I want to do today is, as we think about our identity is making sure that we understand or have the assurance that our identity is truly in Christ, that, that we have made that commitment, we have made that step, we have done what we need to do uh, to be in Jesus and to have Him uh, as our Savior. And, and the first part of this conversation starts in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. And we're going to read the, the sections, this whole section together and then make some observations that will lead us to another text. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, uh, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. For for those of you that are like me that have been here your whole life, and your life might be longer than mine or it might be shorter than mine, uh, you're familiar with that passage. You're familiar with the idea of the Great Commission. But I'm reading that, and, and I'm thinking about some things as I'm reading it. And the, the first thing that that I love about this particular text that that maybe is not pointed out a whole lot is the humanity of his eleven disciples, the humanity of of the eleven closest people. To Jesus. Start back in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Jesus said, Hey, I want you to go here. I want you to be here. This is where we're going to meet. So they all get there. (laughs) What does verse 17 say? It says, When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some what? What does it say? Some doubted. That's an interesting word to me, but it's also an encouraging word to me because these guys had followed Jesus every step of his life nearly for three years. They had seen him do some amazing things. They had seen him do miraculous things. They had seen him heal people. They had seen him drive out demons. They have seen him calm storms. They had seen 
the pinnacle of it all, they had seen him be raised back to life. He was dead, and then he was raised back to life. They had seen Jesus in a way that very few had seen him, and in a way that we never will get to see him. And they get together with him, and they saw him, and their first reaction to him was to what? Was to worship him. And I love that. I love that their first reaction was to worship him, even though some of them doubted. Even though some of them doubted. Now, there's not any fleshed out you know, verses here of, of what they doubted. So to talk about what they doubted would purely be, purely be speculation. Um, I think that they doubted maybe what was coming next, what was really fixing to happen. Uh, what their role, what their job, what their place was, what was Jesus going to do. Uh, they, they didn't know really what to expect. But what I love about just that glimpse of their humanity is that even the men that walked side by side with Jesus had moments where they were somewhat unsure. They had moments where they really couldn't figure out exactly what was next. Now, I don't know about you, but, but, well, I know some of you are this way. Some of us, we have to know what's coming next, right? Our mind just works that way. I, I've got, I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and once I get this done, then this is the next thing that I have to do. And when I don't know what's coming next, it causes maybe some some frustration. Maybe it causes me to maybe feel out of sorts, or you know, I, I, it, it may cause you to doubt. You don't know exactly what's going to happen, so you kind of you kind of get unsure. And part of the Christian life, part of walking in faith, part of truly believing God is, you know what? We're not always going to know what's coming next. We're not always going to know what He's calling to us to to serve Him in next. We don't always know these different things. And these guys had that moment where they were just really not sure. And they doubted. They just didn't exactly know where they were and what was happening. And and they they were struggling with that. But even in their doubt, what did they do? Even in their doubt, what did they do? They still worshiped Jesus. And that is so powerful to me because... I think in in our culture sometimes doubt doesn't always lead to worship, does it? We don't go, oh man, I'm not really sure what's going on, and let me let me go and let me worship Jesus. That's not always the first reaction that we have. A lot of times our doubt leads to maybe shutting down. Our doubt leads to maybe frustration with other people. Our doubt leads to sometimes things that are maybe unholy, you know. But in this particular situation, these guys had they had been with Jesus enough that even in their doubt. They, they came and just fell before him and said, you're still God. You're still in charge. And we're going to worship you for that. We see that again later in scripture as Paul and Silas are in prison. How many of you would, um, how many of you would be comfortable in prison today? How many of you would be like, Hey, that's, that's my next stop. Let's just let me sign me up. Anybody? Anybody just sign me up for it? No, I don't think any of us are just like, you know, that's where we're longing to go. And Paul and Silas find themselves in prison. They find themselves in the inner room of the prison, the the most secure place of the prison. And I would imagine if I find myself there, I find plenty of things to complain about. Plenty of things to gripe about. Plenty of things to be unsure about. I find plenty of reasons to maybe doubt. But what do Paul and Silas do? They start what? Singing. 
They start worshiping. Sometimes in our life, when things are falling apart around us, when things are uncertain, when things don't seem to fit the way that we think they should fit, the best thing we can do is zoom out because that's what we tend to do. We tend to have a problem and we zoom in on that problem. We can get so focused on that problem that we forget about God. So maybe the step is to zoom out and to make sure we're looking at the big picture. Or maybe if we're not looking at the big picture, make sure we're looking at our big God and know that he's in control. So this morning, if you have moments of doubt, don't, don't, don't be discouraged. That's going to be part of it sometimes. But remember the importance of even in those moments of doubt, of coming back together, bringing yourself back to center, and worshiping your Savior. Uh, that's, that's not something we talk about in this particular text. We always jump to the red words, right? We always jump to the red words. And, and, and I believe there's some great humanity in those couple of verses. But he goes on in verse 18 to the red words. Then Jesus came to them after they had worshipped. And then he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I, and I think that's an important statement. I think that's important to understand what Jesus is fixing to say next. <laughs> what he's fixing to say is, is, is so important, something we hear all the time and we read all the time, but he prefaces it with, I have all the power. I have all the control. I have all the authority. You know, there are people in life who they enjoy authority, and when they get a little bit of authority, they think they have a lot more authority than they do. You ever met people like that? Those people can be real frustrating to deal with, people who think authority make them important. Um, I think it just should make you maybe more responsible. It should make you a little more humble. Uh, but some people just aren't that way. But Jesus says, I have all the authority. That's a lot of authority, isn't it? And he could have said, he could have said, I have all of the authority. Therefore, everyone is going to bow down and worship me and call me their God. Could he have said that? If you've got all the authority, you can say whatever you want and make people do whatever you want them to do. But how sincere is worship when it's forced worship? How sincere is it? It's not really sincere at all, is it? His next statement here is really, and you've heard me say this, it's a statement of, of volunteering, volunteerism, however, however you want to say it. He says, all authority has been given to me. Okay, so verse 19, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. What he goes on and he says, he says, look, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and convince people to follow me. Show them that what I have to offer them is so much greater than anything the world has to offer. And as we look around at the world, man, the world offers a lot of great things. The world offers us so many conveniences, especially in our culture, in our society here in America, so many conveniences. It offers us uh, anything that we want. We can have, you know, almost at the drop of a dime. We, we can, you know, we, how many of you, let's, how many of you, you go to Walmart and you're looking for something and they only have three kinds of the thing that you're looking for and it's really not the kind you want. How many of you have walked in our Walmart and walked out and you go, this Walmart doesn't have anything. We need a bigger Walmart. How many of you have said that? Just raise your hand, be honest. They've got four versions of the thing that you want 
But you don't want one of those four. You want a different version of that, right? We're all so guilty of that. You know what that's called? Spoiled. Spoiled rotten in the South. The world offers us so much. So many conveniences that we're spoiled by them. And Jesus says, I want you to go to these spoiled people. I want you to convince them that what I'm offering is so much better. And I will be honest with you, as opposed to the times that I'm not. No, I'll be honest with you. In today's world, that seems like a hard sell sometimes, doesn't it? To walk up and say, hey, commit to this God that you can't see, and your life's going to be better for it. That's, that's, That's a hard sell when the world offers so much. But he says, look, get to know me, understand what I have to offer, and go out and convince these people to follow me. Help them see that volunteering for my lifestyle is the best. Help them understand that identifying as a Christian, you know, that that word identify means a lot of things in our culture nowadays, doesn't it? But the most important thing that we can ever identify as is what? A true child of God. That is what our identity needs to be based on. And, And how does that happen? He says, go and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That word baptism is such a powerful word as well. But there again, as as Christians who have maybe grown up in this for so many years and lived this in so many different ways and uh, have been here for so long, sometimes those words and these passages, sometimes they lose a little bit of, of their power. But the word baptism is so important to us as children of God because it does so many things for us and not not just forgiveness of our sins. But go with me to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 mentions some things that our baptism does to help us identify as children of God in Acts chapter 2 starting. Let's see, where do we want to start? Starting in verse 36. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter has preached this, this, this lesson, this sermon. He's got up in his talk. They're all preaching in different languages, but they, they key in. The scripture keys in on Peter's words, and he's talking about, you know, how they had crucified Jesus and that he was the Messiah and these things, and these were all the things that they had done to him and they had rejected him. And he says in verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's a great statement. That this is who Jesus is. He is our Lord. He is our Messiah. He is our Savior. He is the one who came to save us. You can take that to the bank. When He says when they heard all of this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, and you know this verse by heart, many of you repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. You know, one of the things that we've done in this passage before as we go, okay, Acts 2.38, we read it and we said, okay, it teaches baptism for forgiveness of sins. But it teaches more than that. It teaches so much more than that. It teaches first and foremost that one of our first steps into a life of salvation starts with the word repent. 
Starts with the word repent. And, and I think that sometimes we have a watered down version of that word repent. We think and we teach repentance is the turning away from something. Okay, and, and, and that idea of I'm going this direction and this is where sin is and I'm turning away from it and I'm going to start walking towards God. But it's more than just turning away from something. It's also a heart thing. It's saying that these things are no longer going to rule and control and be the most important things in my life. True repentance is when I say I'm letting go of these things so that I can grab a hold of the holy things of God. I'm letting go of these things so that I can grab a hold of the holy things of God. And sometimes we like, sometimes we like to wrestle with that, don't we? Sometimes we like to still hold on to some of these earthly things and carry them with us while with this hand we're holding on to God. And that does nothing but kind of drags us down and slows us down. It keeps us from being truly effective when we don't truly repent of things. Repentance is an important, you, you, you can get baptized all day long, but if you, if you've not repented of these things, if you've not let go of these things, if you've not turned your commitment in your life from the things of the world to the thing of God, baptism doesn't do anything. It just gets you wet. In this particular moment, he says it starts with letting go of these things of the world, these things that are so convenient, these things that spoil us so much and realizing that they're not the most important. I'm not saying they can't, not, not everything is sinful, but we can make anything sinful. We can make anything get in the way between my relationship with God and myself. So he says, let go of these things. Let go. He's telling these people, let go of the things that you've always thought, that you've always taught, that you always thought you understood. That's what he's telling them. Let go of everything you know and hold on to Jesus. Let that be your focal point. And when you decide to do that, the next step to that relationship of salvation comes in the moment of your baptism. You know, that word, Paul lists some, some ones, things that should unify us. And baptism is in that list of ones, of, of unifying things. And for whatever reason, within our religious world, baptism has become a, an issue and a topic of disunity and division rather than a moment of unity. And that's sad to me. That's sad to me because God created it to bring us together not to separate us, not to divide us. But he says our, our baptism is that moment where we start that, that new walk, that, that brand new walk with God. And, and, and how does that happen? You know, I, I don't know, I don't know the, the spiritual side of it completely, but I do want to know that this passage tells us that one of the most important things that happens in that moment, it's not just about getting wet, but one of the most important things that happens in that moment is something I don't think we've taught enough when it comes to baptism is in that moment, we receive the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. And that's just amazing. There again, we read it all. We read it and we read it and we read it and we read it and, and, and it just becomes second nature to us. But do you truly understand how magnificent it is, how magnificent it is for God's Spirit to dwell within you? And you see, without that, we have no true salvation. Without that, we don't have... 
Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 1 and he says, this Holy Spirit that you receive when you're baptized, there's no other way to receive the Holy Spirit except through baptism. That's the only way that you receive the Holy Spirit is through that baptism. And when you receive that Holy Spirit, what he does is he secures your salvation. He seals you and and people look at you and go, okay, he belongs to Jesus now. And he is our deposit. He is our guarantee that we have an inheritance with God. He assures our salvation. And without it, we're not saved. And so we need to make sure in our life that we have the Holy Spirit in our life and that he's dwelling within us. And and we need to make sure that we have received that Holy Spirit through the proper way, through the only way, through our baptism. And then he goes on in verse 39. He says, this promise is not just for you and your children. He said, this isn't just about you. He says, but for all of those who are far off. And that's us. He says, this, this promise, this calling is for, for all of us. And then verse 41, he says, for those who accepted his message were baptized. And what happened to those, to those people? It says, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Those 3,000 people decided that day that they were going to identify as children of God. They were going to identify as as Christians, as they would later be called. They were going to be identified as people who followed what Jesus said, what God said, what the Holy Spirit wanted for them in their life. Those are two very simple verses that we, we read and we hear and we talk about quite often, but that are so powerful for our lives that we need to make sure that we're living and following and teaching every opportunity that we have. So my question for you this morning is, as we are in this series of of identifying, have you made that first and maybe most important step to truly identify as a child of God? Have you repented of things in your life, been baptized so that you can be forgiven And have your salvation assured, have your salvation sealed with the Holy Spirit this morning. And if not, I pray that you make that decision today or or very soon so that you can identify as a child of God. Let's go to God in prayer as we close this morning. God, we thank you for this time and this moment. We thank you for the opportunity to just be in your presence, to be surrounded by our brothers and sisters. We thank you for the time that we have Uh, to worship you today. Even if we come before you today with some doubt and with some questions, God, help us to know that that's okay, that worshiping you helps bring clarity. It helps bring, um, it helps bring us kind of back to where we need to be. uh, And that is just in your presence. God, I pray for those that are trying to figure out what they need to do in their life and where they need to lead uh, or where you're trying to lead them and where they need to follow you to, God. And if their first step this morning needs to be uh, to become a child of God, I pray that they listen to your words that we've read this morning and have their sins washed away so that they can be forgiven and start to walk in the life of a disciple. We thank you for these passages, God, and the power that they hold. I know that we can get used to them and be comfortable with them and, and forget their importance, but they are of great importance to us in our faith, God. We thank you for this church family. We pray that we always... Love one another as you have loved us. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. If this program has been beneficial to you, 
please consider subscribing on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider. Also, we'd love for you to leave us a five-star review, which will greatly assist us in getting the message of God's love and salvation to others. We'd love even more for you to join us in person. We are located at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Be sure to join us again. And until then, remember, we are a Church of Christ caring for its community. Yeah.